I was going to name this Onoma. It's a Greek word, and for all of you that know me, when I get to my Greek words, I always mispronounce them somewhat. Okay, so if you know uh, your Greek, just be gentle with me. It's not that I haven't heard the proper pronunciation. It's that I don't remember the pro proper pronunciation. Okay, but I think that's correct. Onoma is the, how the guy says it online. Okay, Onoma, uh, sort of like a you know, Native American uh, type of word. Onoma, uh, I am Onoma. You know, uh, doesn't that sound like it? The other the other week I had Pokemon. Uh, was it Dokimon? And so then I got Pokemon in my head and I couldn't get it out. Uh, so this is Onoma. Uh, onoma is a great word, and it is a word. Words in and of themselves are like carrying devices. They carry ideas in them because we have thoughts in our mind and we want to get them into someone else's mind where they're understood and so you clothe your idea or you capture it in a box or in a shell or in a vehicle known as a word and then you pass it on and if that other person understands that word then they're able to unlock it un and un unfurl it inside of their own understanding and get it. And they say, I get it. I know what you're talking about. A word transfers an idea, which Jesus was the transfer agent of God. He transferred the fullness of the deity to this world so that we could understand the Father. He is the word spoken. So the concept of a word is great. As far as doctrinally, theologically, just practically speaking, if you have a bad vocabulary, your intellect doesn't mean that you don't have a sharp IQ. But if you don't have a good vocabulary, you have a limited ability to understand ideas. So when you hear people that fight for older translations as opposed to these new uh, renderings, when there's a simplification and we're trying to get it down to street level, to the ignorance of our culture, we're trying to communicate the Word of God, as opposed to allowing the Word of God to be as broad and as deep and as full as it is and train those people how to understand what it means, as opposed to diminishing it, and then they have no depth to it. They're understanding it at such a simplistic level when there's so much richness and so much robustness in it. Okay, so here we are. I'm talking about a word. Well, the word that we're going to transfer uh, today is the idea of a name. Now, I know all of you know what a name is. It's just a moniker. It is like a title to most of us. In other words, Eric's name is Eric. And, you know, there's nothing very big about a name. But a name holds something in it like a word does. It is, there's depth to what a name is. Because when you, when you talk about the idea of a good name or a bad name, he has a bad name or, he, well, uh, th that could be misunderstood too. Meaning he has a bad character. He has a bad reputation. Or he has a good reputation. He has a good name. Or the, the Ludi family, we need to maintain the name of the Ludi family. Eric, when the company comes over, we need you to behave. Because we need you to maintain the reputation or the goodness or the perception of goodness of the Ludi name. Okay, this is a lot of what, us, what we grew up with. Uh, <clears throat> so here's what I want to get into. You'll notice, you know, the title is In the Name of Jesus. This is something that if you grew up in Christianity, you know the phrase. We always say it at the end of prayers. We don't know why we say it at the end of prayers, but we're supposed to say it because somehow it makes our prayer official. Ever had that thought? It's like if you forgot to say it, does God then say, well, I didn't hear it because you didn't say it. Uh, I remember us having a discussion. It was like a Thanksgiving type of discussion uh, in the uh, Runkles household. We usually have some fairly bizarre uh, conversations. And so I brought up the conversation about praying before meals. And I said, so if you pray before a meal and then you get distracted, how long does your prayer last before it like fades? <laughs> and it's, you know, effectiveness over the, the food, supposedly. Is that what we're praying for, the food? You know, how long does it last? Uh, does it last like five minutes and then do you need to pray again? Have you ever had that feeling when you have a long break and then you have dessert? Are you supposed to pray? What, what's the etiquette, the spiritual etiquette for this? All that stuff is absolutely ridiculous, okay? That totally misses the idea of what it means to give thanks. You're not praying over food. You're not praying for food unless you know it's poison. It's like, okay, let's see this change from poison to healthy. But for the most part, we're not dealing with poisonous food here. We're dealing with the issue of thanksgiving, of acknowledging who God is, that he is the provider. Okay, so we get off in some weird things. The same thing happens with in the name of Jesus, 
because we think it is some magic phrase that we need to tag on to the end of our prayers to make them work. It's like they suddenly just are activated. We pray this whole thing, and God's like, I'm waiting for it. Hey, I'm waiting for it. Hey, I haven't heard it yet. And then suddenly, in the name of Jesus, amen. And he's like, that was close. Okay, now I can do it. Okay, just so we can dispel that myth, that isn't how God works. God isn't looking for the right verbiage. He's looking for the right state of soul. There is something that you are supposed to have within you, and you're praying in a reality. The concept in Scripture is faith. You are praying in light of something. You understand something to be true. You acknowledge it is true. You reckon it. That was the word we talked about last week, an accounting term. It's dealing with facts. Most of us, when we think about faith, we oftentimes think that we're dealing in theories and, and uh, things that we want to be true. They're not really true, but we try and whip up a good feeling towards it. Like, oh, God is going to be faithful to me. God is going to, so we try and talk ourselves into it. That's not what faith is. Faith is assuredness. It's concrete understanding. This is what God said. And if he said it, it's as good as done. Here I stand. I will not be moved. You reckon it as fact. And I, I gave the illustration, I think it was last week. I said, if I gave you $13, and you looked at it, you counted it, and I said, how much money do you have? Well, hopefully you'd say, I have $13. Now, it does you no good to say, I have $100. Why? Because you don't. And that's what a lot of us do in Christianity is we try and act like we have more than what we have. What God wants us to be dealing with is facts, truth. What we have is what we have. If you don't have it, then you don't have it. If you have $13 and you put it in your ledger, $13. You don't say you have two. A lot of Christians today say, I only have $2. Well, actually, you have 13 They are missing. In fact, if I was going to be accurate with it, we say we have two and we have $2 billion. We don't realize what the purchase of the cross was. We are massively underselling it in our lives. Okay, so that's probably the best illustration. Now, I, I gave a, a, a story last week of three guys. Remember the three characters? Fact, faith, and experience. So, <clears throat> fact, is on a, they're on a ridge pole. The very top of a barn, and this little narrow uh, jaunt there. And so, fact is making his way along, and fact doesn't waver. Fact is just fact. And so he moves along without any worry. Because he's fact. He knows what truth is. He knows what reality is because he's it. Faith, as long as he is walking behind fact and is focused on fact, he does not waver either. He stays strong and sturdy. But there is experience behind faith. And experience has a rough go of it. Okay, he's just all over the place. And experience is always looking for someone to look at him too. I don't know if you've ever noticed with your past experience when it comes to the truth of Jesus Christ, the fact of what Scripture says, and your experience, experience is really loud and has a big opinion about things. Okay, fact doesn't seem to ever talk. He just sort of sits there silently walks. Okay, but experience is very noisy. And so as you're walking, as long as you stay focused on what fact is, you're fine. But the moment you turn around and look at wobbly old experience, not only does experience fall off the roof, but faith does too. Faith goes right with experience off the roof. Experience is not your justifier of God. Fact is, God is true. Let every man be a liar. Let every experience be proved a liar. Those who trust their God will be proven that their experience will begin to line up. When faith stands true to fact, guess what? Your experience ends up getting solid. And suddenly as you keep walking, experience follows with you. But it's when you turn around and look at your past experiences, not only do you get wobbly, everyone around you gets wobbly. Most of the church today is focused on experience and has no idea what the truth of Scripture actually says. Because they don't believe Scripture is veritable, is accurate, is true. If you remove the truthfulness of Scripture in our basis as a Christian, you lose every bit of stability in the Christian walk. That is why the enemy is after that as his prime target. That is why in the very Garden of Eden he went after that very point. Did God say? Can we be sure of this? That's what the enemy is after. He wants to remove fact from the equation. He wants to make it seem as if it is theory, it is wishful thinking, that faith itself is positive thinking. It has nothing to do with concrete reality. I am married to Leslie Ludy. It's a fact. And if you try and talk me out of it, you're going to have a tough go at it. Why? Because it's true. 
It is just the way it is. And so when I walk in accordance with that, life makes sense. But if I started to waver on that, it's like, am I really married? Imagine me coming home and going, what's she doing in my house? Life would get weird. Okay, my relationship would be strange. Who are these kids? Do they belong to me? Were they out of wedlock? Who is it? How am I? What's going on? It, craziness is what ensues because it's not based on truth and reality. And the enemy plays that game all the time. The onuma of Christ. There is no greater name, we know this, there is no greater name than Jesus Christ. But what is the significance of his name? And why is it that when we employ his name, that our prayers are heard? Why is it that we need to live in accordance with his name, speak in accordance with his name, and pray in accordance with his name? Why does that even matter? Why can't we just pray? Because isn't that just prayer? Why do you need to have, be in the name of Jesus? And here's what I want to clarify. True prayer doesn't have to say in the name of Jesus. It doesn't have to. I'm not saying it shouldn't because it's a great reminder of what it's all about. However, it always has to be done in the name of Jesus because that's what true prayer is. So that's what we need to describe here. I'm not saying you have to say the words. I'm saying it always has to be in the name of Jesus. When you are a lamb and you are uh, hanging out next to your shepherd's ankle, then basically when you challenge the wolves out there that want to eat you for dinner, you better do it standing next to your shepherd and in his shadow. Otherwise you're dead. Okay, don't take on the enemy when you're wandering away from your shepherd. Always be in the shepherd's presence. Always be in the name of Jesus. Does that make sense? It's a similar parallel. Now I'm going to give you multiple parallels for it. But I want you to realize it is being in his strength, in his power, in his position that he has purchased on the cross for you. Okay, so let's read this thing that I, I wrote about the onoma of Christ. The name of Christ is the essence of his person. His nature, his preeminence, his majesty, his kingly rank, his all-compassing authority, his holy loving interests, his divine pleasures, his timeless commands, his perfect virtue, and his exemplary deeds. That's quite a list. Technically, your name is supposed to be the same. It shows who you are. It's you inside out. So when people trust you, and they trust it in your good name, if you tell them something, they say, yeah, I'll be there. I'll be there at 3 o'clock. Well, they're trusting that. And they're trusting. It's your name they're trusting. It's your nature. That what they've perceived of you, they are leaning on. And if you have a bad name, and you say, yeah, I'll be there at 3 o'clock, the first thought anyone has is, yeah, right. Do you have anyone in your life like that uh, where if they say something to you, you know it's not going to be the case? I mean, it just goes without saying. If they say 3 o'clock, you know 3.30, okay? Then there's other people. If they say 3 o'clock, you know they'll, they won't even show up. It's like they'll forget it as quickly as they say it. There's different varying degrees, but Jesus, when he says 3 o'clock, he is there. That's the point. Jesus Christ is trustworthy. You can take him at his word. He is, there is no variance. There is no shadow of turning in him. So when he promises in his word, he says, this is who I am. He's there. He shows up every single time. I know some of you are saying, you're, you're starting to consult experience. It's like, wait, wait a minute. When you walk that ridgepole, stay focused on fact. I just gave you fact. It's the enemy that wants to turn you. It wants to get you focused on your past experience of a life often lived not necessarily in the name of Jesus. I want you to realize we want to make a distinction between the fact that you prayed prayers in Jesus' name and lived, spoke, and prayed in Jesus' name, in the authority of his name. Last week we talked about a plane. We talked about the law of gravity and the law of aerodynamics. And that law of gravity, as long as it's in effect, prohibits you from flight. I mean, human arms just don't flap well enough to get you off the ground into flight. And the law of gravity keeps you down. It doesn't matter if you're sincere of heart. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't matter if you're well-meaning in your desire to fly. The same is true in your desire to overcome sin. It doesn't matter how well-meaning you are, how desirous you are to please God, you cannot overcome sin in your life. You, have, you don't have the machinery inside of you. The law of gravity is in effect, or what is known in Scripture as the law of sin and death. 
It is in effect, and you are under its thumb. But there is a higher law, and that's why we were talking about the plane. The law of aerodynamics, when you enter into it, it's the law of spirit of life in Christ Jesus, actually trumps the law of gravity. And last week we were talking about that most of us have spent our life crawling around on the outside of the plane. We know all about the plane. We can answer trivia questions about the plane. You ask us a nice, good, solid uh, question about Christian history, and we can answer it. You know, who slew Goliath? David. And everyone's like, oh, he's good. <laughs> we know the answers. We know what the plane looks like. We've studied it. We know what, you know, aluminum materials are in, in its makeup. We know what wing structure has, what type of uh, propelling agent it uses. I don't know anything about planes, so please don't ask me any questions after this. Like, Eric, you sounded very knowledgeable about planes. No, I'm making this up as I'm going. Uh, some of you know that because you do know about planes. You're like, what's he talking about? You know about planes, speaking of Jesus Christ. You know about Christianity. You've been in, whether it's Sabbath school, Sunday school, you have your training, you have your grooming. You know what you believe. But you have been on the outside of that plane and never on the inside. Because it's the inside residents that truly trump the law of gravity. Being on the outside of a plane, what you'll find is that the law of gravity is still in effect. You might be holding on to the plane, but... You're sliding down the side, and every time it lifts off, there you are, a pile, a heap on the ground again. And you're watching Jesus fly. He can do it. You know he can. I mean, the issue isn't, if, did Jesus live a sinless life? Most of you probably have good, solid doctrine. Sure. He was God. He, he did it. He did it 100%. I can't do it. That's the end conclusion. There is nothing in me that can do it. It's Romans 7. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord is the follow-up, who trumped the law of sin and death. If you stick your head outside that plane, the law of gravity is still in effect. But if you stay in that plane, if you stay in Jesus Christ, then the impossible will begin to take place in your life. Not because you can do the impossible, but because he can. That is the secret to Christianity. It's always been that way. You have to abide in him. You have to yield to him. You have to surrender yourself to him. That's how it works. So the second half of this is the, to pray. Uh, sorry about that, the, my, uh, my writing. It says the pray or speak. So don't look at that. To pray or speak in the onoma of Christ is to do a thing by his command, fortified in his all-compassing authority, exerting his kingly rank, his loving, holy interest, his divine pleasure, his timeless command, acting on his behalf and promoting his cause in this, in this earth. Okay, now I want to get some raw stuff out on the table here, and then we'll come back to the onoma of Christ. The floating axe head. Okay, if you take a little peek at 2 Kings 6, it's just a great uh, chapter. And just the life of Elisha, because Elisha, he's, he's the follow-up. You know, he has the mantle of Elijah. And Elijah is about as impressive as they get in the Old Testament. I mean, if you're going to pick... One of your guys from the Old Testament say, which guy do you want at your side if all hell is breaking loose? I mean, you'd say, I mean, it, well, it'd be fascinating. Just think about that for a second. <laughs> I don't know what you, who you would pick, but it's like if you needed to part waters, if you needed to move mountains, throw them into the sea, if you needed to bring down fire from heaven, you need something extreme. Okay, I mean, you have your short list. Moses, you know, the guy did some pretty amazing stuff. But Elijah seemed to have the swagger. David did, but not in the big things where, like, he'd go, and armies would fall down. And so, you know, I would probably lean towards Elijah, Moses. You know, that, that would probably be a couple of my, you know, top dogs. Uh, and so, I don't know who you would pick, but you may want to consider Elisha. Because Elijah has the big name, but Elisha received a double portion of what Elijah had. That's pretty impressive. Okay, so I just bragged up Elijah, right? And now in comes Elisha. The, one of the great moments in history is when Elijah is going to be carried up in a chariot of fire. By the way, this happened. Okay, I know you're looking back at experience going, I've never seen it. I don't care. God said it. It happened. I know it's bizarre. I've never seen a chariot of fire either. Go up in a whirlwind into heaven. This is a pretty amazing situation, okay? So Elijah never died. 
Enoch never died. I mean, this is weird stuff, all right? So it happened, okay? I, I can't prove anything, but I know it's a fact. Because truth is Scripture. Scripture is truth. This is what God says. This is what he, if, if he says it, it's as good as real and done for me, okay? So at this great moment on the far side of the Jordan, when Elijah is going to be taken up, Eli, Elisha, oh, Elijah says, ask for anything from me and I'll give it to you. And he's just about to take on the mantle of Elijah. And so what does Elisha say? This is great. Uh, I want a double portion of what you have. That's about as good of a request as I've ever heard in all of Scripture. And you know what Elijah said? You've asked a hard thing. <laughs> but if you see me taken up, then you know that you, you've received what you asked. So that's why it's so amazing when Elisha is seen Elijah taken up in the chariot of fire. Now you have to realize this is a parallel with the New Testament. Because who saw Jesus ascend? But his disciples. His bride. And they received the works I do. You will do even greater works than these. Now that is preposterous. We're talking about Jesus here. But those that witness, those that follow, that take on the mantle, have something. Okay, now I know we haven't seen any of this in our generation. It's, it's totally uncomfortable for many of us. But I'm just saying this is fact in Scripture. This is the way it is. This is how God lays it out. So this is Elisha we're dealing with. And by the way, he had exactly double the miracles recorded in the Bible as Elijah did. In fact, he was one short of double, and he died. So it's like, oh, no. The guy died. He's one short of double in all of recorded biblical history. But then these guys were running around. They had a dead man, and they were looking for a place to stow him and, and stash him away. And so they threw him in Elisha's tomb. And the guy pops back to life. And God says, don't think I didn't know how to figure, end this tale. Uh, so then it's like Elisha, double. Double Elijah's miracles. That's extraordinary. That's just, it's just great. So here's one of them. This is just one of those, well, and I have a reason for reading this. The floating axe head. So he went with them. This is speaking of, uh, maybe I should give you a little background. Elisha has been asked by the prophets, they need to build a better place for the prophets to live. And this story is so seemingly meaningless in the Bible. Yet there is nothing meaningless in the Bible. Nothing. So God is like giving this little picture because the prophets are saying, yeah, we just need a little more room here. Uh, in the prophet's headquarters. And uh, so will you come down with us to Jordan? We need to cut some trees down. So it's like, okay, what's going on here? Why is this important? And God says, just, just wait. And so we go down to the Jordan. They're chopping down trees. One of the guys, I don't know if he was like swinging like this with his axe, and the head of the axe goes flying off and into the Jordan River. And the guy is like, oh, no. This was a borrowed axe. Okay, now I want you to just, let's stop there. Pause. Again, we have to say, all right, there's a lot of huge things going on in the Bible. This guy borrowed an axe. <laughs> They're chopping out wood so that they can build a bigger prophet's headquarters. A prophet's headquarters, by the way, which we never hear of again. So who cares? The guy's axe, what would you say? Say you're Elisha and you hear about this guy's borrowed axe, okay? And the, the fact that the axe uh, part has fallen into the Jordan River. It's like, buy him a new one. <laughs> raise some support. I know, you know, maybe prophets don't have a lot of money, but raise some, It's just an axe, okay? Who cares? But God cares for some reason because when Elisha prays, things happen. Okay, now there's a reason why I'm, I'm, I'm bringing this up. So they, he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. And he cried out and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. See, I didn't make anything up there. So the man of God said, Where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick and threw it in there. And he made the iron float. Therefore he said, Pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and took it. All right, now... It's just a little raw material, throwing it out there. But I want you to realize that when you walk in the life of Jesus Christ, when you walk in the power of your God, nothing is insignificant to your God. I want you to realize that God proved this so thoroughly when he was down here on earth. 
You know that most of what Jesus did was mundane, miraculous? Why do we need to know about the fig tree withering? Jesus brings us down. He puts us like close in view on the smallest little things. And he's saying, I care. I care about the smallest little things. And I am useful and available. The, the disciples are in the boat. And Jesus is speaking. And they feel that he's correcting them because they forgot to bring their lunch with them. And so they're just mortified before God. And, and Jesus says, don't you realize who is in the boat with you? I don't care about your lunch. I just multiplied one lunch and fed 5,000 men and who knows how many women and children. Okay? The same God is in the boat with you right now. We have a tendency to think that the power of God and the power and the authority in the name of Jesus is for huge things in life. Like, for instance, this school... To many of you, that would be a pretty big thing to go after. It's pretty small. It's pretty small. But let's get down to even a more myopic level. An axe head. It doesn't matter how small it gets. God cares. And he says, what I did and what I purchased for you and this mantle that I've wrapped around you, known as me, is useful for it all. There is nothing that is outside of my gaze. If you're struggling with something, take it to me. Okay. Horses and chariots of fire. I sent this to uh, Bex had asked me for uh, a copy of a, a blog that I'd written in regards to Kipling's name. And so I was reading it this week, and here I, here I was thinking about all this, and then this comes. That was like the perfect illustration, so thanks, thanks Bex. And I read this in my blog. So here I am reading my own blog going, that is, that is great. <laughs> now... I didn't come up with this, okay? This is just good stuff out of the Bible, okay? So don't think that I'm complimenting my blog. <clears throat> okay, let me give you a little background on this. Syria is coming against Israel. And Syria, when they're making their move to try and quash Israel and destroy Israel, Elisha has some understanding, and he knows where the king of Syria is moving. He knows where he's coming. And so he tells the king of Israel, he says, Put a watchman there so you can see when they move. And so everything that Syria is doing is being found out and exposed. There must be some mole inside of Syria, in, inside the government of Syria, that's it's leaking information to the Israelites. And so the king of Syria, let's see where we're at in the story. No, okay, it's after this. Uh, the king of Syria actually summons his men and says, okay. Who's on the side of Israel here? I know someone is because every single thing we do, they know what we're doing. And so this one guy in, in the rank says, the prophet Elijah knows what you're saying in your bedroom. That's what he says. Knows what you say in your bedroom. And so the king of Syria is like furious that this prophet would be spying on him in his bedroom. And so he's like, where is he? And so they figure out where Elisha is. And they send an entire army out to get him. Okay, now put yourself in Elisha's shoes. You're one guy. Okay, and you're a prophet sort of guy. So you probably don't lift weights. All right, you probably don't swing a sword very often. You're just sort of a guy. Uh, and you're not trained for battle. You're trained for prayer. You are trained to do damage in the spiritual realm, not necessarily in the physical realm. So here's Elijah, Elisha, and he has his uh, servant with him. And here we are. Therefore he, and I put in parentheses so you know who we were talking about, the king of Syria, sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, so this is the servant talking to Elisha, Alas, my master. Doesn't that sound familiar from the previous one? Alas, my master. What shall we do? So he answered. Okay, listen to Elisha. This is great. This is the way I want to respond. When I see horses and chariots surrounding me, when I see a great army with the king of Syria at the helm coming against me to destroy my life, to say, you are nothing. You can't stand against the powers of this earth. I want to I say this. Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Okay, now, 
That sounds like a very noble statement, but if you could look, there's just his servant there. So, but those that are with us are greater than those that are with them. Hey, welcome to Christianity. This is how it works. How it works is you are in the midst of hostile territory. And the moment you stand up in the spirit of Elisha, when you have the Lord God of Elijah on your behest, working on your behest, and you have defected out of this world and into his kingdom, you are a threat. And everything you do is a threat. And the enemy wants to destroy you. And so he marshals his troops to come against you and to give an illusion of strength and power and dominance over your life. And he does this through sin all the time. Guys deal with lust and they can't even imagine being able to get past it. They can't. I mean, it's always controlled them. And they're always looking back at their experience and they fall right back off the ridgepole. Because their experience testifies defeat. And if all you've done, every time the king of Syria surrounds you, is you surrender. I mean, what are you going to do? Are you going to fight him? What would you do if you're all alone and in an in a, in a army surrounds you? Of course you surrender. And that's what we do to sin all the time in our Christian walk. We do it all the time. Why? Because we don't see that those that are with us are greater than those that are coming against us. We don't see it. You have to see it. And if you don't see it and you don't believe it, then you can never stand strong in the battle. Okay, so let's, let's read what happens here. Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Do you see it? Do you see the mountain full of horses and chariots of fire that surround God's chosen, God's anointed, God's people? Because if you stand in Jesus Christ, this is what surrounds you. You've never seen it. And as a result, you respond like the servant and not like Elisha. When that battle comes against you, you fold up underneath it. You say, enemy, take me. I can't fight against you. And you will always lose the battle. There is only one way to gain victory, and that's to believe that your God is who he says he is. And that when he says he fights for you, when he says he's defeated sin on your behalf, you say it's true. And so when that army surrounds you of sin, baiting you, tempting you to surrender in discouragement, you stand up and say, those that are with me are greater than any army I see here. You see, Thomas had to see. That servant had to see it. Here's the challenge for us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. This is the great challenge for us. God has revealed the truth to us in Scripture. See, most of us are thinking, well, if I saw the, the mountain full of chariots and horses, or horses and chariots of fire, of course I would believe. Blessed is he who has not seen the mountain full of horses and chariots of fire, but believes that they're there and walks accordingly. Blessed are those who have not seen victory in Christianity in this generation, but still hold to the fact that the Bible is true. Blessed are those who have not seen it, yet still believe. You will get something far richer if you're willing to walk that ridgepole focused on fact instead of turning around and consulting experience. Because the experience in this Christian culture that we've all been raised in is absolute defeat. That's just the way it is. So you have to choose where you're looking. And you have to choose what you're believing. And I want you to realize that your life is not so insignificant that the greatness and the grandness of God's power will not work on your behalf. Because we're saying, well, that's Elisha. Of course he's assigning chariots of fire to him. He's important. Okay, that's the next line the enemy gives. Because why in the world would you be considered important? It's ironic that God gives the floating axe head right before that story. And it's just some guy. He's saying it's just some guy whose axe head goes flying off and into the Jordan. And that some guy is like us. Because who cares about your axe head? And guess what? Even you're thinking, my axe head isn't important enough to garner this type of attention in the Bible. God shouldn't spend any time on that. Let's deal with Elisha. 
He's the big guy around here. To God, your axe head matters. That is why the context of this is so extraordinary. That literally sentences before that statement, we see God taking care of a little axe head and making it float. So for those of you that are tempted to say, I believe that that mountain was surrounded by horses and chariots of fire, but my mountain isn't. You fail to understand what the gospel is. The gospel is not just for Elisha. The gospel is not just for Elijah. That's why in James, he makes it very clear. Do you know that this guy was a guy just like you? He's just like you. He's not special in any sense, other than the fact that he believed his God. Who in this generation is willing to believe their God and to take their little axe head life to him and say, I know it doesn't seem very important, but it's sort of in the Jordan, you know, I, I need some help here. I, I think there's a lot more depth to the floating axe head, by the way, the fact that it was in the Jordan, and that's the place of baptism, death unto life. And so there's just probably more there. I'm not going to talk about that. <clears throat> okay, the onoma of man. I want to walk through uh, some onomas, and I want you to fully relish the weakness of them. Okay? Because we live in these onomas, and we show great deference to them. And yet, when you look at them in contrast with the onoma of Christ, they are absolutely pitiful. Okay? Now, I could have put your name in here, but that would have been really uh, awkward for me to do. So I stuck my name in there. And I don't want you to enjoy it too much. (coughs) In the name of Eric. That's impressive, isn't it? What would you expect to happen if any of us decided to invoke the name of Eric? We know nothing would, don't we? We have a full confidence. It has nothing to do with the fact that Eric is living some pitiful, horrendous life. It's the fact that in Eric is no power. You know I can't save you. You know I can't. Now, I, if you were drowning, I would go and I, I could you know, bring you into the shore. I could do things practically and physically for you. If you're short, you know, some money. I have a little. You know, I, can, I can give you some money and support you through a tough time. There are things I can do, yes. But the name of Eric is extremely limited. It can't perform on your behalf. So don't enter into a confidence and say, I stand in this earth in the, in the verity that Eric will stand for me if ever there is a trial. That is not what will carry you through. You will waver in a time of testing. Where's Eric? Where's Eric? I called on him and he's not here. I can't always be there. I'm weak. I'm frail. But most of us live in accordance with our own name. We try and accomplish things on spiritual levels in our own name. God, I've, I've been faithful to you. I've done this ministry. I've, you know, I've prayed for you know, this many years to you. And in the name of Eric, we do all the time. We try and step outside of what is the only thing that could possibly transact at the spiritual realm. Possibly make anything happen on planet Earth. And we try and make it happen in our own strength. Even though our doctrine is still correct and we know that only God can do it. We still end up deferring or defaulting back to ourself. Very dangerous thing, and I just want you to realize the stupidity of it. In the name of Obama. You know, Obama, to many, is considered a Messiah. And I, it, there's a spiritual dimension to this man. I don't know what's going on with it, but it's weird, okay? And there is a confidence in this man that he can carry people through. That it, his legislation will somehow work the miracle that they have always dreamed of. And it will rescue them out of their poverty, out of their miserable state, out of their depression. There has been a a hoodwinking, some duping that has gone on in a spiritual dimension, which has caused these people in this country to actually think that there is strength in the name of Obama. Well, I'm here to tell you that there is actually no such strength in this man's name. None. If you try and invoke the name of Obama, you will have nothing after you do it. Nothing other than emptiness and despair. There is no strength in that man's name. He's a man. He is not my God. In the name of Luigi, this is the mob boss. Have you ever uh, seen one of those uh, old movies uh, where uh, Luigi sends his guy on an errand? You know, tell him Luigi. Uh, tell him Luigi will get him. I don't have a good Italian accent either, but uh, 
Tell him Luigi will break his bones if he doesn't comply. You know, whatever it is. And so you're the ambassador of Luigi. Okay? Now, some of you are very impressed with that voice. I can see it. Uh, and so you come and you say, uh, uh, Luigi said, give up the money. Okay? You owe him two grand right now. I want the two grand. I wish I could speak in Italian because this could be really uh, entertaining. But I don't know how to say it. <laughs> okay? You owe him two grand. And if you don't give him two grand... He's going to break your legs. Okay? Now, guess what? If Luigi is Al Capone, that has some strength to it. You have to just follow me on this. If you know, if someone came and said Al Capone wants his money, well, guess what? You know that if you don't give it, your legs are broken. In other words, there is a certain measure of authority. The same is true with Obama. If someone said Obama, you know, wants this to happen. Well, you tremble a little because it's Obama. Obama has authority in the human dimension. Luigi or Al Capone has power and authority in the human dimension. And you know that if someone comes to you in their name, that they can transact. You, they are standing in the name of someone that has authority. In the name of Alexander, Alexander the Great. When Alexander the Great would enter a country, a city, he would lay it flat. And if any, he sent his emissaries ahead of him, and if they said, uh, the great Alexander is coming, you must surrender. They would. Why? Because his reputation and his name preceded him. And they would literally just crumple uh, in obedience unto this man who hadn't even entered the picture yet. He may decide to go somewhere else. Well, that was easy. That's how you conquer the known world. You gain a reputation and a name, and then you, you know, get that name out in front of you. You know that what Alexander would do? He would literally, if there was this one siege upon this uh, city, and he had all his men march. And they marched straight over a cliff to their death. Do you imagine? And then the, the city said, we surrender. Why? Because he, they knew that if he could command his men to their death, and they would obey, that he would get what he wanted. And he knew that they would not stop. The worst army you could ever fight would be that type of an army. So they literally surrendered after witnessing it. That's strength and authority in the realm of men. And when you speak in the name of Alexander, you have authority. But that authority has no ability to save the soul, no ability to rescue your life. And I don't care if you are surrounded by the hordes of Alexander, and they come to you and say, Alexander is coming, you better surrender. If you stand in the name of Jesus, you say those that are with us are greater than those that are with him. This is the greatest conqueror ever. And you could say that. Isn't that exciting? So the next one is in the name of the king of Assyria. Hey, well, he seems like nothing next to my Alexander illustration. But I want you to realize, it doesn't matter who comes against you. I know how the enemy works. The enemy wants to bait you and let you think that you are weak and there is no resistance that you can possibly have towards his agenda to bring you down. That is one of his number one sales pitches. And guess what? You feel weak. You feel like that servant standing next to Elisha. Sure, Elisha is strong, but you are weak. And so if it's up to you, there's no way you're going to be able to hold off this, this hard in the name of Jesus. Now, if I wish we could get a vision of this. You know, Jesus came as a lamb. That doesn't mean that's all he is. He came as a lamb to mock the powers of earth and hell. He, he defeated all the powers of earth and hell as a lamb. That's hilarious. But that doesn't mean that's all he is. He came in weakness. That doesn't mean he, that's all he is, is weakness. He's strength. He's a lion. He's a lion of the tribe of Judah. I love that. It has a great ring to it. So I want you to envision. Now, because Revelation 19 is one of my favorite pictures of Jesus. This general of generals on his white steed. And he's strolling the stage as we're talking. And he's looking at his troops. And he is packed with strength. Now, I don't want to just use earthly terminology to describe who he is. But if it helps for you to understand a Herculean God sitting on his steed, crowns upon his head, meaning authority of authority of authority. There is nothing that isn't under his feet. And anything at his word, 
will be either created or decimated. He holds absolute sway over all things. And he has a sword jutting out of his mouth. I don't, that mental picture might not work for you. But if you need to picture the big Ulysses sword in his hand, do it. On his thigh, if he ever gives you a glimpse of it, it reads King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All-powerful, almighty. And as we stand in this life, we stand focused on this world. We realize that he who is with us is greater than he who is against us. That's our posture as Christians. But faith is knowing that he is there. And he will transact that which he promises to transact on our behalf when we stand in faith. Now, behind Jesus are the multitude of angelic warriors. In their chariots, and well, horses and chariots of fire. Read Ezekiel 1, and that's even a better picture of God. With the blazing, furnace-like look, his voice, the sound of rushing waters. I mean, this is God we are talking about here. And we're afraid of, in the name of Obama, in the name of Alexander, in the name of the king of Syria? Who cares about them? Who cares about Goliath, the greatest warrior in the generation? Are we going to be as David and see the great big God that stands above Goliath saying, just tell me when to crush him, David. Just tell me when. I'm waiting for someone who will stand up and believe me, that will believe that I am who I say I am. We have the general of generals backing us up, saying, move, move. I've called you forward. Move, and I will back you up. And when the enemy says, I can take you down any time, you just back out of the way and says, you mess with me, you mess with my whole family. That's strength. Nay, uh, listen to these, in Romans 8, nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. 2 Kings 6, this is just a, uh, a repeat. Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Whatsoever. Now you'll see in the next three, I had all sorts of whatsoever scriptures. and I, What I ended up focusing on is in my name. But the whatsoever, when Jesus says, uh, let's read John 14. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. There are loads of scriptures like this. Not just the three I picked, but if I wanted to keep it to two pages, I had to uh, trim them down. Now look at the whatsoever, because and I've described the whatsoever in different ways uh, in past sessions. I want to focus on a very specific thing today. And that is the small, seemingly insignificant things, which are us. We have no business being included in these scriptures. These scriptures are too big for us. Any more than we have any business entering into the, the picture of Elisha and thinking that, oh, yeah, we're the prophet in Israel that's going to save the day. Are, do you know what's going on in the king of Assyria's bedroom? Are you the one consulting the king of Israel? Yeah, you're nothing. That's what the enemy's saying to us. You're nothing. All this stuff of strength and valor and courage and boldness in the Christian life to overcome sin, that's for special Christians. That's for that... You know, once in a generation type. No, it's for the axe head. It's for you and me. It's for all of us that are seemingly insignificant. And Jesus goes out of his way to make it clear. An axe head, a wedding feast. Okay, now, this is, we don't even know who the couple is. Okay, it wasn't like the, the prince of Israel, you know, and Jesus was invited in and he was like, oh, thank you for inviting me. And he came in and did this great miracle. This is some obscure little thing that no one would even notice. Except for Jesus hallmarked it. He came in and he took something totally mundane and turned it upside down. That's you. You're the wedding feast. You have no business being noticed. Why would he attend your ceremony? He's God. I don't know why he shows up either. But he comes to our little axe head, you know, loss in the Jordan. He comes to our little wedding feast, totally insignificant, and he finds it. He goes out of his way and says, I'm here. And then he turns something totally mundane into something spectacular. A meal in the boondocks. Remember when he fed 5,000? Out in the middle of nowhere. You know, guess what? To be honest, when I think through this rationally, just send them home. They can fast for the day. Okay, I, th I honestly think that. From the rational vantage, that's the same thing I think about the axe head. 
the wedding feast miracle could easily go overlooked. Jesus, don't waste your first miracle in a situation where people could just like leave early from the party. Or they might not notice. And then they could be drunk from the earlier wine. We don't even know if they're going to see it. The meal in the boondocks. That's you. That's me. Something totally insignificant and seemingly unnecessary. Why would he need to do it? Because he wants to show forth his glory in this earth. And so he takes the little weak things known as you and me. And he says, I want to use you. Me? Why me? He says, I'm going to surround you with a mountain full of horses and chariots of fire. Do you mind? Because I would like you to walk boldly as a little lamb. See, it says that he sends us out as lambs among wolves. But what needs to be added? And then surrounds us with a mountain full of chariots, horses and chariots of fire. As lambs. That's how he mocks and holds in derision the enemy. Because as a lamb, you have confidence that what is in you is greater than what's in this world. And those that are with you are greater than all the numbers that stand against you in this world. And you're a little insignificant lamb. You're a meal in the boondocks. A quicker way across the lake. He didn't need to do that. He didn't need to walk on water. But he did. Showing that seemingly insignificant things are important to him. Everything matters to him. Everything. And I want you to realize that. One of the great debates that I've had in my generation is the fact that God doesn't care. At a certain level, you start to get into this minutia, and he doesn't care about that. When I first said that I'm waiting on God for my future spouse, that was the number one attack that came my way. Eric, that's ridiculous. God doesn't care about things like that. He wants you to go out, find her, and then he'll bless it. I said, I've given my life to Jesus. He knows what's best for me. And if I, if, even if he said, Eric, you make the choice, I'd fall down flat on my face and say, God, you know me better than I know myself, you choose. I'm giving it back to him no matter what, and I trust that he is interested in the minutia. I trust that he cares about every little detail. Withering a fig tree. Jesus' life is constantly focused on small things, and yet he is the God of the universe. John could have written a lot more. But he chose, and all the, apostles, all the disciples, or I'm saying all the gospels chose to focus on seemingly small and insignificant things. But Jesus' life was so much bigger than that. So that we would not miss the fact that we, the insignificant things, are not insignificant to God. And the power of Elisha is made available for us to live our, Christian, our Christianity out. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do. That's a fact. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you, that ye should go and bring forth fruit, that your fruit should remain, and that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So we see this, this condition here of asking in his name. Now, there are other scriptures that don't mention in his name. And it says, ask whatsoever you will. It doesn't even say in his name. But in his name, in the understanding of how you interpret scripture, you always look for the wholeness, the harmony of, how it, of what it's all saying. We know that there is something significant about praying in the name of Jesus. And what I want you to understand that as is praying in the plane. You are praying in the spirit of God, in the life of triumph. You have entered into him. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. You've yielded yourself to him. He owns you now. And you live in that state. And anything you ask in that state will be done. It's in the name of Jesus. It's in his authority. It's in his nature. You've entered in. You do not ask for the Ferrari. Why? Because that isn't his agenda in your life. You ask in accordance with his agenda. All you care about is his agenda. That's what it means to die. So when you are dead, your prayers live. They work because they're not about you. They're about him. The three conditions of the whatsoever prayer. And so it has to be according to his will. Now I'll read these three things to you, okay? Because I'm not making this up. This is just what it says in Scripture. And this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. Which means it has to be in his name. It has to be in accordance with his will. So that has to be, the whatsoever has to fall within those bounds. 
ye ask amiss to spend on your lust. So let's read in James. It says, ye ask and receive not. Well, wait a minute. He says, ask whatsoever you will, and you'll receive it. And then in James, it says, ye ask and receive not. Well, there's an explainer here. It says, because ye ask amiss. You're asking wrong. In other words, there's a right way to ask. That you may consume it upon your lust. Well, if you're praying to consume it upon yourself, if it's about you, that means you're not dead. You're not in Christ. Guess what? You're asking amiss. You will not receive it. That isn't how you get what God promised you to get. But if you give up your life, if you enter into Christ, and you're asking rightly, anything you ask, whatsoever you ask from that position, will be done. That's fact. Nothing wavering. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraids not. And it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. Listen to this line. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Whoa, that's a stiff statement. In other words, God says, don't consult experience. You stay true to fact. Do you believe me? That I am the general of generals. That I am backing you up. And that I say, you move forward in this direction and your God will be behind you. Do you trust me? And I say, if you ask for wisdom, I'll give it to you. Okay, God? I take you at your word. I believe it. I need wisdom right now. He says, you'll get it. Okay. It's as good as done. You reckon it is true. Faith. Faith is assurance. It's fact. It's basing your life on the fact of what Jesus Christ promised and not stumbling around on it. It says of Abraham, he staggered not at the promises of God. We stagger all the time. And we can't figure out what's wrong with our praying. Now, I know that sounds like, well, how am I supposed to not stagger? You need to start reckoning what God says is true as true. You have to start closing your ears to the doubt and the disillusionment of your generation. Because it's not helping you. If you need to stop reading those books, stop going to those classes that are always filling your mind with all sorts of ridiculousness, then do. It says, think on these things. That's what Paul says. In other words, there's a thing that your mind is supposed to be thinking on. Things that are true, right, lovely, of good report. Keep your mind on things that are true so you're not wavering on the ridgepole. So that you can walk this straight and narrow life. Because God has promised and he will perform. That is what scripture says. Take him at his word and begin to live it. Three conditions of the whatsoever prayer. This is basically what it means to pray in his name. If you're praying in his name, you're in the plane. Or as I used last week, in the tank. When you're in the tank, the enemy's pot shots at you don't work very well. It's a shield about you. So he comes in with his, his gun. Ping! It bounces off. As long as you're in the tank. You stick your head out of the tank, getting cocky. It's like, I could take that enemy on. Then you, the assassin's bullet immediately takes you out. And that's what most of us have experienced in our life. We're on top of the tank. Well, guess what? It doesn't do you a lot of good to be living on top of a tank. I'm on the tank. I'm on the tank. Being on a tank means nothing. Being in the tank means everything. You need to be in Christ. So last week I walked you through the process of being in Christ. If you need to hear that message again, I would encourage you to do it. But I said in Romans 6, it talked about, first of all, you have to know these things are true. You have to know it. If you don't know it, you'll never get in the tank. If Jesus says, yeah, you need to get in the tank. And no one ever tells you that and you're hanging on the outside of the tank wondering why you're getting picked off with bullets all the time. It's because no one ever told you you need to get in the tank. So then when someone tells you to get in the tank, you're like, oh, I didn't know that. Well, now you do. So what should you do? Get in the tank. And that's what it means to reckon. You reckon it is true, so you get in the tank. You don't hang around on the outside and go, well, I'm going to try it a little longer. Maybe that person was exaggerated. Maybe they didn't totally know what they were talking about. If God said it, take it as true and get in the tank, because that is your salvation. That is how he says, this is how I'll save you. And then when you get in the, the tank, the next stage, so it's knowing, reckoning, and then presenting. You present your body unto God. To no longer serve sin, but to serve righteousness. You become a slave to him, to righteousness. And your body is now controlled by the living God. You no longer live, but Christ lives in you. This is the transaction of truth on planet earth. This is what establishes the word of God in living flesh again. 
This is what makes Christianity work is you can't be in control of your life. You need to know it, you need to reckon it as true, and then you need to enter into Christ. No longer living, but Christ living in you. God wants you to enter into him so that he can enter into you. This is the great mystery called the mystery of godliness. This is how it works. This is what it's always been throughout history. We're not inventing things here. I'm just speaking very loudly about them. Things that have been around for a long time. I get very passionate about it. We need to live in the name of Jesus. And when we pray that now, I want you to realize that when you are, you don't need to say in the name of Jesus at the end of your prayer, like I said before. But I want you to realize that the enemy knows what it means. Because you're saying, hey enemy, you see this general right here? You see this? He defeated you. And in his name, I command you to get out of here. And guess what? He leaves. And he leaves with his tail between his legs. Because he knows he can't fight this. He knows he's defeated. He cannot argue. You can tell the enemy to be silent. You ever tried it? Try it. Tell the enemy to be silent. Not in your name, not in your own confidence, not in the eloquence of your prayer. In the name of Jesus. That's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. So wield this name. Wield the authority of it. You have been given the right to stand in it. To wield this, this name, this all-powerful, authoritative name of Jesus. You've been given the right to do it. Isn't that crazy? That God would give us the right to wield a nuclear bomb like that. And that's what Christianity is. For those of you that are needing that encouragement in your soul, that strength in your soul to say, I need this. I just have to have the strength and the confidence to stay focused on fact instead of turning around and constantly viewing my experience. This is what God wants to give you. A message like this is useless if it doesn't have uh, an ability to grab a hold of your heart and, and, and live within you. Ask him for it. Ask him. One of the great prayers in the Old Testament, I'm sorry, in the New Testament is, I believe Jesus, but help my unbelief. That's just a great prayer. The guy was healed. He said, I believe. Jesus said, do you believe? He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. <laughs> in other words, I'm, I believe, but I'm really struggling with unbelief at the same time. Do you understand Jesus? He says, I do. You're healed. Jesus knows right where you're at. He knows how wavering you can be. And he wants to make you solid and strong. So be honest with him. Don't try and cover up your unbelief and say, oh, it's just belief. I'm, I'm just going to call this belief. Again, reckon what is true is true in your life. If you're living in unbelief, just tell God. He already knows it. Reckon it is true. But then turn. Turn from that unbelief and say, God, I want to live your way according to your pattern. I don't want to be pushed around by the enemy. He's an intimidator. That's all he is. But he has no teeth behind him. It's Luigi's hitman who's coming after you saying, Luigi's going to break your legs. And you say, do you know who's going to break his legs if he tries? <laughs> In other words, we have someone so much greater on our behalf, working on our side. We need to see it. Ask God to allow your soul to see it in the spiritual realm. You don't have to see it with natural eyes to believe it. You need to see it in the spiritual realm. You need to know that God is on your side. And you need to know that he cares about axe heads. Like you. He does. He cares about you and I. Not because we're something special. We are. To him. But not because we perform and do some great thing or we're wise and have you know, great use of our intellect, great vocabulary. He cares about us. And he is willing to put himself fully and wholly behind us to accomplish his purposes on this earth. Let's pray. Holy Father. Your children must see I pray that you would open our eyes to see it. I pray that you would open our eyes to see the mountain full of horses and chariots of fire. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would allow us to realize that this God, this power, this might is for us. It's not just for heroes of the faith in the Old Testament or in the New. It's for us. It's for us right now, tonight. Lord, make our axe head float. Whatever is sinking in our life, Lord Jesus, I pray that that stick would be thrown in and we would see the impossible take place tonight. Make us strong for battle. Make us strong to fight for your truth, Lord Jesus. 
We need it, Lord. Please help us. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray this. Understanding the full authority that is vested in that name. Understanding that it's the name of the general of generals, the king of kings, and nothing can withstand it. Nothing can resist his power. I know that this will be accomplished. Lord Jesus, awaken your church in this country. Please, Lord Jesus, don't let us sink. Please, Lord Jesus, rescue us. We're dying. And I pray that you would start here in our midst. Don't let us just know these things. Let them live within us. Please grab a hold of our souls and awaken us, Lord Jesus. It's in that name that we pray. With full assurance and full confidence in that name. Amen.